Tansy Hoskins is an award-winning journalist and author. She has had three books published, and her latest, The Anti-Capitalist Book of Fashion, launched in August of 2022. This book unpicks the threads of capitalist industry to reveal the truth about our clothes. Tansy currently lives in London and travels around Europe to lecture on the politics of the fashion industry at universities, museums, cultural events, and political gatherings. She's a member of the National Union of Journalists and is certified carbon literate by the National Literacy Project. Tansy Hoskins, welcome to One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. In your book, The Anti-Capitalist Book of Fashion, you really invite us to focus on areas of this industry that we often consume without thinking about it. So I believe you're going to share a passage from your book. This April is the 10th anniversary of the Rana Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh. I thought I would just read like how the book starts because, you know, this was the sort of seismic event of the fashion industry and that has really shaped the industry. So this is what opens the book and it's called Stories from Savar. Mashumi cannot sleep for the nightmares. Even during bright sunlit days, she is haunted by memories. Young and pretty with a gold nose ring, Mashumi was two months into a job on the seventh floor, earning money to support her family. Now she sits at home, shoulders stooped and eyes haunted under the crease of a slight frown. Her small son stays close, not understanding why his mother no longer smiles. Four floors below Mashumi was Arisa, an experienced machinist in her early 40s. She had migrated south from the city of Rangpur to ease her family's financial difficulties. Still in mourning for her death, her three children say they will never work in a garment factory. A woman named Reka tells of her niece who was also killed. A bright young woman of 18 named Dulari who took a temporary job in garments to pay for an education so that she could get a job in an office. Next to Reka is six-year-old Shamin, who will not let go of his father's trousers leg. After his mother, Jahida, died in the collapse, his ten-year-old sister went to live with their grandmother in the village, but Shahim is too distraught to leave his father's side for fear he will also be taken. Situated in Savar, an industrial district on the outskirts of Dhaka, the Rana Plaza factory complex was an eight-storey building housing five garment factories. This overcrowded, poorly built complex became a symbol of global inequality when, on April the 24th, 2013, it collapsed on itself, its straining internal pillars buckling and cracking under the weight of too many stories, too many machines and bales of cloth, and too many human beings packed in tight rows. Considered the deadliest unintended structural failure of modern times, global trade unions called Rana Plaza a mass industrial homicide. An estimated 1,138 people were killed. Thousands more were trapped in the rubble, some of whom had to self-amputate their own limbs before they could be pulled free. For the world outside of Dhaka, when the TV screens lit up, the death of so many people and the brutal injury of thousands more exposed a truth. The world has been twisted to value objects more than human life and dignity. Indeed, we don't often think about the distance that we are from the lives that are lost or the lives that go into them in these working conditions they don't have, living wage. That's the one side of what you discuss in depth, the ethical fashion. And then there seems to be another branch of this the idea that we are not anywhere close to, even though the word sustainability is used a lot, but a truly sustainable fashion, which means protecting not just workers' rights, but protecting our rivers and soils and life on this planet. 
So it seems like those are the like the two branches, which might even be in conflict with each other, because if we wake up and realize we don't need to keep on changing our fashion, that might not sustain the millions of workers whose lives depend on it as well. Yeah, I mean, we certainly need to change the whole fashion industry. I, I think at the moment we do have a situation where the clothes that are being produced are valued more than the people who are producing them. And, you know, when you think that these days people don't really even value their clothes that much, you know, that shows how badly people are treated. Um, I definitely believe we need a, a global green new deal, which will involve massive structural degrowth of the fashion industry. But as you say, we have to make sure that we don't just repeat the sacrifice zones that we're seeing anyway with climate change, whereby we say to the 4 million garment workers in Bangladesh, okay, you know, it's been great. You've, you know, you've made several billion bits of clothing, but like we're off now and, you know, you have no more jobs and no more, no infrastructure. And so, yeah, it has to be just transition. But I think it's in many ways, like it's a bit of an exciting opportunity whereby we could really overturn this global export economy. That's how I see the fashion industry essentially is that it fits into this pattern that started with colonialism, whereby the global South is just there to kind of service the global north and in the case of the fashion industry the land and the people and the resources are just there to service global north corporations the big fashion players to the detriment of you know the majority of people in this world indeed in many ways you know they say you know, slavery has continued it's just like outsourced or people working in at least near slavery conditions and then the other side of that coin is the environmental degradation. And I think, you know, just to put it in perspective, I think when you hear the statistics that we don't see the landfills or the 23 billion pairs of shoes made every year and 22 billion are like of them are thrown into the landfills or the 700 gallons of water it can take to produce like a cotton shirt or 2,000 gallons for, for a pair of jeans. That seems so wasteful as you think about this. But you know, some influencers or just want to be photographed with their clothing that they don't even wear, but seem to be able to afford a new outfit every day, not even wearing it and then throwing it out. Yeah, it's interesting. I did an event last night at the Institut Francais in uh, London. Yeah, we were having like very similar conversation and sort of talking about like where this idea that you have to have new clothes, like not even every season now, but sort of every week almost. And it's like one of the most unhealthy parts of the fashion industry. But a lot of this mindset comes from luxury fashion. This is like rich people fantasy where like you can't be seen in the same dress twice, and which has just been sort of applied to all the rest of us. And the messaging that goes with that is that we're not good enough somehow, you know, that our bodies aren't good enough, our appearances aren't good enough. But if you just buy this one last thing, then you'll be transformed and you'll become popular or beautiful or whatever. You know, the right to repair is a big issue now that people would like to repair their clothes, would like to, you know, take part in a circular economy. But industries don't make that easy to just even repair the things that one has. Yeah, I mean, I, I am super fascinated by repair and I think it's, you know, it's one of the areas that really gives me hope and it really inspires me. Like I love visible mending. I love upcycling. I love to see what people are doing in those kind of sectors. You know, I certainly believe that we have 
like enough clothing. We could hit an imaginary pause button and we've got enough clothes and we've enough shoes to make sure that everybody on the planet is healthily sort of shod and clothed for a very long time to come and not in a boring way, not in a like, okay, we have to wear gray shifts or something, but in a really exciting, fashion forward, innovative. So, but yes, brands do not make it easy at all. When I was researching Footwork, the book I published before this one, I did some quite a bit of investigating into how to recycle a shoe. Because as you mentioned, you know, we make over 23 billion pairs of shoes every year, 66.6 million pairs every single day, which is just extraordinary. So we are creating these huge mountains of waste, but it's just incredibly difficult to recycle a shoe. Firstly, because they're made from a dozen or so different materials, so plastics, leather, cotton, metal, foams, and then these are all bonded really tightly together. So when it comes to trying to recycle them, it's really, really hard. And also it's not like a circuit board. You're not going to get out bits of copper or whatever. These are really low value items. What the scientists that I spoke to were just like, well, the companies produce all of this waste, but they're only concerned with it up to the point where they sell it to the consumer. After that, they have no legal responsibility for what happens to it. And so at the moment, the big brands aren't there. They're not on the front line of waste disposal. They're not on the front line of, of repair. I mean, I'm a little bit hopeful that this might change. France is starting to move towards polluter pays style legislation and it's possible that other countries will follow that. But I, I really think that's what it's going to take. Because at the moment, they don't have to invest in, in repair or waste. But the second they have to pay for all that waste, then it's a totally different story. Exactly. I believe since 2000, the fast fashion industry is making twice as many clothes as they were in 2000. So, I mean, our population is growing, but not at that rate to justify that amount of waste. And as I think back, shops didn't over purchase or have this idea that they had to change their whole inventory Every week or every two weeks, they would run out of clothing line and then that would be it. I mean, it was like a foresight in that sense, but they had a sense of not wanting to waste. So they only bought what they thought was necessary. The rate was just more like a human scale of production. And also in that time, if you think back to my grandmother's lifespan, most people in that period, they knew also had to make their own clothes. The idea that you could buy patterns, clothing patterns, now you can't even find those things. Now it's just so much knowledge novelty. We've lost those traditional skills. The loss of knowledge is also a great loss because when you don't know how to make something yourself, you kind of also don't value it. You're not valuing the workers. You don't know the time and care that goes into it. You're completely right. And I think one of the sort of added tragedies of that is that even a lot of the time, women who in the global South work for 40 years in the garment industry still themselves then don't know how to make a garment based on the training that they've had in that factory because you don't get taught how to make a dress. You get taught how to stitch on the buttons or, you know, stitch on the sleeves or, or snip the threads, a really kind of Fordist way of producing clothes. So even within the garment sector, there's often not a lot of that in whole skill of clothes making. But yeah, I think it's one of the real tragedies of the fashion industry is the way these skills have been lost, like these skills that were often passed down from parent to child. And I think there should be something quite innate about those skills because clothing yourself you know it's along with sort of feeding yourself and keeping yourself warm like it's an essential part of being human uh, and that craft is being lost and also I think 
that the removal of this kind of craft adds to the sort of problematizing of our bodies because the fashion industry is based on these random dress sizes. It's just a kind of box that your body is supposed to fit into and nine times out of 10 don't fit into that box like what a pair of size 12 jeans is supposed to be or whatever. So you're taught to think that your body is the problem whereas actually like capitalism's way of sort of sizing and selling clothes is the problem. And I've got friends who are heavily into craft and they say that if you make a dress for yourself that it totally transforms the process so your two long arms suddenly aren't too long it's just you've got to measure them and measure the material so it fits or your waist that is like supposedly too big or too small or your legs which are too big or too small aren't now too big or too small they're just something that you work with and you measure the it's another a good reason to get more into craft So a lot of our listeners would ask themselves, you know, what can we do as consumers? It's quite difficult to reform overnight the capitalist system, but, you know, and what can we push for? We'll talk a little bit about the right to repair. What can we do individually and how might we push the needle forward? Yeah, I think there's no doubt that across the globe, we need to be fitting within a 1.5 degree lifestyle, right? So, and that's critical. But I think within that, it's also important to see that it's not everybody that's got to change. So it kind of depends who is listening. If you are a member of the sort of 1%, if the, the global elite with a private jet, then, you know, you need to stop flying around in that private jet. You need to drastically reduce your consumption of probably everything, you know, for the more like regular people on the street, I think now is a really important and interesting time to reset your relationship with fashion and with consumption overall. And to really have a think about whether you are consuming too much and whether you could, you know, I saw a report the other week that was like, you know, reset your relationship with fashion by committing to only buying five new items a year which shouldn't be a problem at all and so for people to be thinking actually like so if I'm just buying five new items a year should I be shopping more secondhand should I be swapping more with people should I be getting my clothes or shoes mended stuff like this it's critical that we do make these kind of changes the fashion industry is going to change either in a catastrophe sense if we don't get a handle on the climate crisis or it can change in a positive sense so there's that but also I think definitely more important is getting involved in some of the struggles that are already taking place within the fashion industry. So the drive to to get workers a living wage right across the industry, that's absolutely critical. It's critical for the climate crisis. It's critical for human rights in general and some of the anti-gender-based violence campaigns that are also taking place the campaigns to try and get the severance funds after the pandemic there's so much going on and so i would really urge people not to see themselves as consumers but to take a much more active political stance when it comes to fashion so you're talking about how we should consume less and just kind of slow down our intake of the fashion industry and i'm a member of gen z so i basically see a new fashion trend pretty much every week on my social media feed. It's just influencers, it's brands, everything that's marketed towards me specifically. And I wanted to ask, what would your advice specifically to young women, since I feel like the fashion industry specifically targets us just with everything, what would your advice be to try to slow down our consumption and kind of the trend cycling in our closet? What would be the best way to do that? 
Yeah, like I totally feel your pain. <laughs> it's a horrible situation. And the fashion industry, it's really sexist in the way it really targets young women like this. Obviously, all of this is optional sort of advice, but you know, you can kind of do an audit of your social media feeds as a first thing and just be like, is following these people like actually helping my overall kind of emotional health? And if necessary, unfollow them. You can also shut down your social media feed. If you find that that is what is making you feel you have to go and buy something, you know, that you feel like you're not good enough or your clothes are not good enough, kind of having that quite honest emotional chat with yourself and unfollowing people or even shutting down like the account overall. I mean, I personally quit Instagram having become quite aware of the really detrimental impact it was having on my sort of mental and emotional health. Yeah, not reading fashion magazines, like staying a bit away from this content, I think is really important. I know I can't read a fashion magazine without thinking like, oh, I need to go shopping or I want to look like that or I want to buy this. So I try not to read them overall. There's nothing wrong with getting new bits of clothing, but kind of thinking about where you're getting them from. So deciding, okay, I'm not going to buy anything new for the next year. I'm going to go instead, I'm going to go to like charity shops, thrift stores. I'm going to do Depop and Vintage and eBay and get into the excitement of secondhand and indeed like making stuff as well. And, you know, to like develop a new skill and stuff is always really good. But also not being super hard on yourself is really important. And just kind of thinking, okay, like I am up against like the consolidated powers of the biggest brands in the world whose sole purpose on earth is to convince me I'm not good enough and that I need to buy their crap, basically. Finally, like a great antidote to all of this is becoming like a bit more of a fashion activist and really engaging in like where you know where the stuff comes from and what it's made of because it's a very different experience going into a shop and seeing for example a made in Bangladesh label or a currently like a made in Myanmar label when you know the lived reality of the people in those factories so I think ultimately that's the way of totally changing your mindset but yeah it's a lifelong project like I'm not there yet nobody's quite there yet nobody's perfect but yeah I hope that helps a bit I mean I'm on social media Mostly because like, especially my generation, it's hard not to be. Yeah. And it's just like all of social media is pretty much fast fashion because I mean, at least my generation, we've never really seen a world without fast fashion. But my journey, at least I'm really into sustainable fashion specifically and kind of seeing if I can research sustainable brands, if there are actually sustainable brands, which brands are the most sustainable, what constitutes uh sustainable anti or uncapitalist brand if that can <laughs> exist at all so would you say that sustainable brands and like kind of an anti-capitalist fashion or like sustainable anti-capitalist fashion would they go hand in hand would that work at all do they go hand in hand at all Oof, that's a big question. I mean, sometimes I just sort of think like, what is it that we're trying to sustain when we talk about like sustainable fashion? So I think something that is like really kind of anti-capitalist or actually sustainable has to be really not engaging with this fashion system. And, you know, there would have to be sort of no like exploitation or like absolutely minimal exploitation within that. So yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, there's definitely like small brands that are doing a much better job than a lot of the big players and are kind of creating a blueprint for a future society and showing, look, we can make beautiful things without like trashing the planet and, you know, without exploiting people to the extent that we see with the big brands. And so I think that's really important because 
like, yeah, I want to change the world, but I want to change the world for the better. I want to be able to show people, look, like if we degrow the fashion industry or if we overthrow capitalism or whatever, you know, live in harmony with the biosphere, whatever it is, that actually things are going to be better for everyone. We're not doing this so stuff can get worse. We want to do it so so things can get better. So you were talking about exploitation in the fashion industry and... The theory I've read, exploitation like is a key part of capitalism. So theoretically, wouldn't any brand have to have exploitation if it wants to exist in a capitalist society? Yeah, I mean, I definitely believe at the moment that the fashion brands, big fashion in particular, like they just exist to exploit people. It's an excuse to exploit the poor, basically. Like I see fashion as part of this very extractive global economic society where 100, 150 years ago, that extraction was very obvious. You had the enslavement of people. You had, you know, taxation. You had literally armies turning up and occupying the land that they wanted and just taking whatever resources or land these days like it is it's more subtle but the brands are still following those colonial pathways you know I'm like sat here in London and you know there's a reason why British brands go to like India Bangladesh Pakistan following the same colonial uh, trade routes it's also a system very much based on really unfair debt and a total lack of debt justice whereby Global South economies are having to earn foreign capital by opening themselves up to these export industries, whether that's cotton or coffee or garments. 80% of everything that Bangladesh exports is garments. It's a ludicrous position for an economy like to be in and it's very deliberate like the exploitation as well you know brands make these sourcing decisions very deliberately they go where they they think that workers rights will be suppressed and environmental legislation will be suppressed and if anything does happen that the government will step in and do the suppressing and just give them a sort of carte blanche to do whatever they want so yeah at the moment Yes, it's very difficult to point at any part of the fashion industry and go, that's not exploitative. You know, that's exploiting the land, that's exploiting these people, that's, you know, that's based on fossil fuels, those toxic dyes are going into the river. Yeah, it's a deeply exploitative industry. I love fashion, personally. Like, I love dressing up. I feel like that's just part of being a woman in the society. Like the fashion industry targets us and we've got to like fashion in some capacity. But I wanted to ask you, is there really any like perfect solution to kind of loving fashion, but at the same time being an anti-capitalist, I guess, fashionista? Is that possible? Would that work together? I think we first of all have to take the idea of perfect existence off the table Right. So if we're not trying to be perfect, then I think there are some interesting avenues that that we can explore where we can all definitely do better. So, yeah, I think repair is a really important thing. So becoming knowledgeable and like fluent in repair and repairing your clothes is really important. Finding way to exchange clothes that is not based on just buying new clothes from brands is really important. I think that the secondhand market whether it's sort of peer-to-peer market, sort of Depop type things is really interesting and important. Charity shops are important, like obviously the model at the moment where then loads of the secondhand stuff is exported is not working at all. But having these kind of hubs in our community where there's a surplus of clothes that people can get in an affordable way is really important. And this sort of anarchist tradition of free shops, like in, in my neighborhood, there's like a warm coat 
collection that happens in the winter. At the moment, there's a free shop for like uh, baby and children's clothes that's going on. You know, these are signs of like the cost of living crisis in the UK. So they're not like, it's not like something to be super cheerful about, but it shows that there are these other ways of exchanging this surplus of clothing that we have. But I think number one, like if you want to be like an anti-capitalist fashionista, if you know, we're going to create that today, it is like being an activist within the fashion industry right? So it's not really how you look, it's kind of what you do. And at the moment, that is, for me, like standing in solidarity with the garment workers, 80 odd million people who are on the front line of capitalism and in the garment industry. And yeah, and showing up for them, like with the living wage campaigns and the anti-gender based violence campaigns and these kind of things. And, you know, sticking up for land defenders and the protesters in Myanmar, the people defending the rainforest in Brazil. Like, I think that's where you can start kind of living the political ideology of anti-capitalism. And we've got to kind of free ourselves as well. Like, is capitalism that wants us to sort of fixate on our appearance and our sort of consumer choices? Whereas I think if we kind of free ourselves from that and go, yeah, that's fun. Like, that's a thing we can do. But the main thing I'm going to concentrate on is how we change the world in a collective internationalist fashion. I think then we start getting towards being anti-capitalist fashionistas, definitely. I'm Bianca Weber, one of the student podcasters here at One Planet Podcast at The Creative Process. I'm a public policy, sustainability, and environment podcaster from Syracuse University. I'm extremely interested in fashion and sustainability, and I mostly do sustainable fashion research on my own time. I've been researching it for a couple years now, and as a content creator, the best way for me to promote it is to post information about it on my Instagram and TikTok about sustainable fashion how to be more anti-capitalist and sustainable with your wardrobe. I'm a member of Gen Z, and I know that me and my peers have climate anxiety, and this research and content creation is how I'm channeling my climate anxiety into something that could help my peers be more sustainable. Fast fashion has skyrocketed in recent years, and it's extremely detrimental to the environment. Working conditions are incredibly dangerous, and they perpetuate sexism in these factories, making fast fashion not only an environmental issue, but a feminist issue as well. So Tansy Hoskins has established for us that fast fashion is just plain bad. So what can we do about it? First, Tansy talks to us about not buying fast fashion. It's easier than it sounds. Just cut your consumption. Do you really need that t-shirt that will probably go out of style next month? Be good to the environment and your wallet. You can always go thrifting or buy vintage. Don't overconsume, of course, but if you really want a new item of clothing, go thrifting. The clothes will be constructed better and last longer because while fast fashion doesn't create clothes that last, throughout the rest of history, they were made to last a lifetime. Third, you can always buy from sustainable brands. If you really can't stand thrifting or cutting down your consumption, buy from better brands. Do research on sustainable brands and greenwashing, find stats on your favorite brands and whether they are, in fact, sustainable. Remember, fast fashion doesn't always mean cheap. Most luxury fashion brands are also fast fashion. Tansy finally reminds us that we don't have to be perfect. All we need to do is try to be more anti-capitalist and, and sustainable in our fashion consumption. Now, back to the interview. 
I think it seems out of reach sometimes, but there are these cooperatives or worker-owned factories. I was speaking with Richard Wolf of Democracy at Work, and he's seen these elements where workers do end up combining their incomes to own the factories. That's real liberation, not being a consumer slave, not being a slave to the factory, where you're a real share of the wealth. What a share is, what does that mean, a share? It's a share of the wealth and putting that in the hands of workers. And you're so right. We don't often really get to face the consequences of what this capital system that we enjoy the benefits of, but we don't look under the hood and see what's done really in our name. And so you ask also some provocative questions like, is fashion racist? I felt it was really necessary to include that in in the first iteration of the anti-capitalist book, Book of Fashion. And in this one, I mean, I grew up being reading fashion magazines, primarily like British Vogue, and I could read it from cover to cover and never see a model or a celebrity in there that wasn't a white woman, basically. I grew up in London, right? Like I didn't grow up in a white city. It was a very alienating experience to read these magazines. And, you know, and then there's been like sort of expose after expose on a very recent history, like the last sort of 10 years of how like black models and models of color have been treated by the industry, the ridiculously offensively racist photo shoots that the biggest fashion brands and fashion media brands have constructed and put together. And, you know, you've had dozens of people involved in publishing these images. Of course, that sort of visual culture is one side of it. Then you have like the ownership of the brands and the way people are kept out of that. And then you have this base layer of the fashion industry, which is approximately 80 million garment workers who are overwhelmingly people of colour, overwhelmingly migrant women a lot of the time and impoverished migrant women from the global south. So I thought it was really important to like look at how structurally based upon racism the fashion industry is. And that's not even getting into the sort of the history of some of the luxury brands in particular, Chanel, who was literally a card-carrying Nazi, not to sugarcoat it at all. Like she she believed in fascism. She was a Nazi. And yet these are the logos that we still hold up. Christian Dior was designing for Nazi officers in Paris. So it's a dark, unpleasant history that we don't talk about very much. And I think we can't change the fashion industry until we really confront these structures and this history. And I'm glad that there have been some changes. You know, we have like Edward Enenfall at the top job in British Vogue now. The visual culture has changed. Things are not acceptable that were acceptable a very, very short time ago, but there's still just such a long way to go. And speaking of the contemporary face of fashion, can you just go into a little bit of how fast fashion brands have really transformed? We used to have a sense of seasons with fashion. And now it's like this weekly, bi-weekly turnover. Yes, it's faster and faster all the time. It's essentially summer and winter is the simple way of thinking about it. So you'd be expected to refresh your wardrobe for warm weather clothes and then refresh your wardrobe again for cold weather clothes. I mean, now that has completely gone out of the wardrobe. It's perfectly typical for a big fashion brand to have like 52 different seasons. So there'll be new collections being added every single week. Vice magazine did look at, I think it was Boohoo, which is one of Britain's like super fast 
kind of slash fashion an online brand and they were putting up like hundreds of different items every single week i can't remember the exact statistic but it was like astonishing levels they either like chuck away or send back what doesn't fit and so yeah even for brands there's a recognition that this model is not really working because most of the stuff you produce is being sent back and it's just heartbreaking when you think about the amount of land and the amount of labor energy and the amount of resources that go into like producing a dress or a pair of shoes or a t-shirt that then is never even worn then is bought from the brand tried on once sent back and then get scrapped so yeah all that labor all that energy just make rubbish basically if you actually measured the cost it would be much more than the price even to get a basic shirt or something if you were really valuing every step of the chain and so it takes a bit of a re-education you know this idea that true wealth comes from use and not from possession this idea it's hard to think in this collective way. I mean, society used to be more circular by design because we had a better sense of the true value of things. I think that's definitely true. And I think the fashion industry is very responsible for a lot of that mindset. You know, it's like where fashion goes, you know, other industries tend to follow. It doesn't just sort of dictate what we should wear. It dictates many, many aspects of our lives and how society operates. I suppose the good thing in that is that if we can overhaul the fashion industry then we would be changing a lot more we could change the total culture yeah if we can get back to this idea that we should value things based on how we use them and if you can do that with clothing I think you can do that with anything yeah I think that on the fashion level it's something that we can rethink a little bit easier because it's not a necessity per se right and I would love for us to go completely circular in our economy but it's kind of hard for that so if you can start with fashion that's something like oh how could I just be a little bit more sustainable or eco-conscious and then maybe we apply this thinking to agriculture we can apply it to so many things so it becomes like a good like starting block to re-educating ourselves and changing habits, which is so important. Yeah, I totally think you're right. I mean, we have this, we have such an excess now of material and perfectly good material and perfectly good clothes. We must remember that we can change as much as we can, but we've got to change sort of corporate mindsets as well. There's so much, for example, sort of denim or cotton material that brands could be reworking that denim as it was and sort of stitching together new garments that way but but they don't want that they want sort of pristine new fabric to work with i really think there's an urgent need for some legislation to govern many of these aspects of the supply chain so workers rights and the environmental impact of supply chains and you know and i think it would benefit brands as well I really do like a lot of the time behind the scenes brands one sense they don't want anything to change i think there is a kind of global awareness that everything really has to change quite fast and at least if we have some legislation it will be more of a level playing field it's not like you have to take that first step and disadvantage yourself against all of your competitors if we just get some legislation in place then all of them have to be doing the same thing and we could start you know and start making some really big changes where we need them indeed and i think that in some ways fashion or there's certain distraction industries and i think that in some ways fashion gives this illusion of change and this illusion that capitalism has been working well and but in fact if you look at it in real terms we have flat wages reduced quality of life 
but I can buy a new garment every week that was made by slave labor in Bangladesh or India or elsewhere. And so it becomes, oh, we're distracted from the fact that many don't have access to health care or basic services. In Britain, they call it the rag trade. We can put a new rag on our back and think all is good and all is well. Absolutely. I mean, fashion is simultaneously like a, an industry that is obsessed with the future and in trying to tell us like what the future should look like, what we should wear and how we should act and so on. But at the same time, like it has a total inability to actually look at the future and to see that what it is offering us is just this headlong rush in, into disaster. So the fashion industry really, really needs to wake up. And I think we all need to think, is it really worth it? Maybe you get like a momentary dopamine hit when you click buy on the website or when something arrives and you wear it once but like what's the cost of that like the number one cause of deforestation of the amazon rainforest is cattle production and part of that is for leather and 50 percent of everything made from leather is shoes so you have this situation fine you get a tiny little dopamine hit but we are losing the rainforest you know we're losing the lungs of the planet we're losing our collective ability to live here so there you know there has to come a point where we go like is this worth it? And like, who's really benefiting? The shareholders are getting richer. Some of the richest men on the planet are the fashion CEOs. So I guess on the positive side or the fashion memories or those garments that meant something to you. I mean, in the past, I remember my grandmother, she has a chest of drawers where there are these things, the idea of heirloom or things that are passed down. So you must have things that you value. You know, so as the antidote to fashion, there is this something that clothing that contains memories and has meaning and connects the generations. Yeah, I think for me, so it's quite cold in London at the moment. So kind of wrapped up in like blankets. The heirlooms I have are mostly blankets that belong to my grandmother or that were knitted and crocheted by my aunties and things like that. And it's those more than clothes that have been sort of handed down to me and given to me that I really, really treasure. And I mean, I love textiles. It's about the fashion industry because I enjoy it and I enjoy beautiful craft and production. So yeah, the, those are the things I think that at the moment I really love. And then I have a lot of clothes that hold a lot of memories. So, you know, the coat I was wearing when I met my partner or, you know, the shoes I wore when I like went on a particularly special hike, like yeah, clothes, shoes, they do hold memories. They're extremely evocative items for all of us. Yes. And as you think about the future and education and teachers that had been important to you and what they passed on, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think it's really important to remember that this system and this point of crisis feels really fixed and really like that we can't change anything and that everything is inevitable. Ursula Le Guin was fond of saying that like at one point the divine right of kings and the surf system felt like it was untouchable. But actually these are just made up systems and if we can make them up then we can unmake them and we can create better things. So I think we are at a point of global opportunity. I certainly think that young people are absolutely critical to what happens next. And if each of us connect to our oneness with the planet and with the biosphere and with the other creatures that we live on this planet with, then we have a lot better shot of keeping within 1.5 degrees and really making a better society for every single person on the planet. It's, yeah, it's not all about our individual pursuit. It's how true sustainability is sustaining all life. 
on this planet. So thank you, Tansy Hoskins, for all you're doing to help us realize new standards, empowering us to change our systems and reimagine ethical and sustainable fashion to design a more sustainable capitalism that lifts all people up. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. Great. Well, thank you so much, Mia and to Bianca. Thanks for having me. It's been lovely to chat with you. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Bianca Weber with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer of this episode was Bianca Weber. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.